welcome to Pale Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network, where we reflect on Wildbo's most triumvirate work as it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. And I'm Elliot Diebold. And we are here to talk about Pale. Ooh, spooky. Speaking of spooky things, you know what else is spooky, Elliot? A fan art contest. Uh, uh, Yeah, yeah. Oh, good (laughs) fan art. It's shocking to me and scary how bad I am in comparison. Um, (laughs) So yeah, we're... (laughs) In case you couldn't tell, that was us segueing into the discussion about the fact that we're running a fan art contest at the moment. Details are in the description down below, but draw some monsters and you might win a prize. Yes, uh, please send those in. Um, I've forgotten exactly when entries close, but I don't think it's within the next week. So, uh, you know, you find just... At least until our next episode. Maybe yeah, and, and next episode will come prepared with the ability to tell you when the entries close. I promise. I make no such guarantees but elliot does so that's good <laughs> um all right so today we're talking about analim 3.6 analim 3.7 confiscated items and of course the usual discussion of predictions and a little bit of a bonus bit talking about technomancy as well but before we get to all that let's begin you know we, we did a fan art contest on monsters so of course let's begin with the biggest monster uh verona's dad <laughs> um analim 3.6 starts with the verona kind of listlessly not really sure what to do. So with no other options, she heads home and has a bit of a hangout with her dad. Yeah. Um, I think the beginning of this chapter is quite interesting in that it, Verona's thoughts on what she can do once Lucy and Avery are out of the picture almost serves as this kind of recap on where all the characters we know in the story are. Uh, like Verona sort of goes through a list of why she can't hang out with anyone um, who she might want as a familiar, like how she can't wait to go and hang out with Alexander at his school because that's a good idea apparently. Um, (laughs) It's like, I think both chapters last week did a lot of like tinfoiling and and moving stuff around in our heads, like, you know, trying to connect dots and stuff. And this one, the starter here just kind of took this little step back and was like, okay, so just, just in case anyone's confused, here's, where everything kind of sits or how Verona feels everything sits. Mm. Um, And to me, that feels like something you start to do as you begin the next massive shift in the status quo, which I suppose we'll get to uh, in the next two chapters. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it definitely feels like, I mean, I don't know. It feels like since Miss left, things haven't gotten to the next stage of the story yet. We're going to settle into things getting more and more hectic as we go, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, but like like I think the way the way we sort of just redraw all those lines for ourselves in this bit with Verona is just kind of like getting you ready to move on because like okay, now now that you remember where everything is, mm. uh let's start fucking with it. Yeah, <laughs> let's mess it all up again. Um so uh, there's this interesting part here where Verona is reflecting on Lucy and the fact that Lucy's been going to so much therapy um, and L- she reflects on how Lucy thinks it's just Jasmine kind of taking precautionary measures in case Paul presses charges. But um, it's interesting. It kind of gives the vibe that Lucy is like writing off how worried her mom about is about her. Like there isn't anything to be worried about and Lucy is kind of denying that. Um, but Verona kind of sees through it a bit, seeing that Jasmine is really scared for Lucy. And I just, I just think this was a nice little beat, um, because I'm definitely on team Jasmine here where (laughs) there's a lot to be worried about with these three. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, exactly. All three of them. Um, I, I completely agree. Like, I think 
I, I, I think Lucy's maybe underestimating how much help she's in need of and how much Jasmine is trying to give it to her. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's this other nice little bit where Verona just when she's thinking about things like Gabe, she mentions to herself, it was easier to think of it as a puzzle. And I'm just like, yeah, Verena, that's a perfect distillation of your problem <laughs> is you think of these things in abstract terms that makes them easier to reconcile, which is a problem because you should be rec- constantly having to reconcile how dangerous the situation you're in is. Yeah. And I think we'll get into this a lot more as we get into, uh, you know, Verona and her dad's hangout session mm. in a minute. But um, yeah. like, I, you're right. This is sort of how Verona is trying to frame things. She wants to take the emotion out of it. Um, yes. Like it's it's easier to take a step back and just treat it as a puzzle. Yeah. Um, easier. Yes. You know, that doesn't mean better. Um, exactly. Right. You're not making any like emotional progress, you know? Yeah. Um, Anyway, let's talk about the scene with her dad where <sighs> Wabo is cruel, very cruel, and almost lets you think for a moment that there's a way that things are going to get better in this relationship before <laughs> brutally snatching that away. Uh, yeah, I mean, I felt like an idiot because I fell for it. I had a moment where I was like, has he changed? And then, like, of course he hadn't. I, like, no, I don't know what I was thinking. He hasn't changed, of course. <laughs> um, but, like, I... I think this this part of the reason I got lured into this is as Verona gets home, all of her thoughts are like, oh, this is so awful. I hate everything about this. I hate that I hate it because, like, you know, her dad has instilled this lesson in her that, like, caring is a kind of weakness. Um, Yeah. At least that's sort of what she's taken out of his behavior to some extent. She has this moment where she thinks, you know, I can't hang out with, uh, with, uh, I keep wanting to say Verena, with Avery or Lucy, like, what should I do? And, and one of the things that comes up is Jeremy, right? The, yeah. The boy that she's been kind of casually flirting with. And she has the thought to herself of, no, you know, that's a relationship. And as I know from my dad, relationships are the worst. Is <laughs> more or less what she thinks. Well, I think there's like even more than that because you know like there's a bit later where she's sort of talking to avery and she's so uncomfortable with Mm. sharing her emotions and it's because she kind of views that it's like this weird toxic masculinity almost although obviously Mm. like you know she's not masculine but it's like she she associates like sharing your your feelings with with weakness essentially yes um Although not not completely, like I think if someone like Lucy or Avery opens up to her, she sees it as a good thing. But she has this double standard where when she does it, it it's because she's weak or whatever. Um, yeah, and yeah, so it says, but like so, so when she's coming into the house, she's she's just lamenting how much she hates this place because she hates the fact that she hates it. Um, and and there's all this stuff about like her trying to remember when this wasn't the case, and there's there's basically all this stuff setting it up, like reminding us how long this has been a problem. Mm. Uh, so it's kind of like, hey, remember how terrible this has been? And so then when you sort of see the light, I, much like Verona, just went grasping for it. I was like, yes, please, please. He's better now. It's fine. <sighs> but of course it's not. He's not. Um, I In my notes, I mentioned that Wabo teased us with it, but the word tease is too playful and <laughs> joyous because it's not this fun thing. It just is pain. <laughs> yeah, because you can, you can see it starting to happen like i I think it was by the time um she does the laundry and i think he comes up and he's like oh yeah i'm just gonna watch like five minutes of the weather and i was like 
no, that's that's yep. too many one more things. I don't know. Don't do this to me. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, there's this other bit that I thought was funny. Uh, I mean, you got to find the fun where you can, I guess. <laughs> um, where her dad, she's, she smiles. She genuinely has, like, a smile from an interaction with her dad. And, of course, he ruins it by saying, oh, there we go, a smile, in that very much the same way that we saw with Lucy a few chapters ago where it was, you know, why don't you smile more? And this is the second beat of somebody, like, drawing attention to the Kenneteers smiling and it immediately souring the moment. Um, I think this so is obviously a- we're going to get third one with Avery, so <laughs> that'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think who the worst person would be to draw that out of mm. Avery. Maybe I was, Cam. I was thinking there's probably somewhere to tie the Hungry Choir's mouth imagery into it, but I couldn't think of a <laughs> compelling way to make Hungry that. Hungry Choir one. telling you to smile more. Um, no, I, I, I think if this is a bit different like the the sort of dad trying to cheer their kid up with like oh there's a smile like yeah it's different energy but i agree like you know the the fact that she just immediately makes her face neutral again afterwards i kind of shows how off the point it was but like yeah i mean it's just it kind of sucks because as soon as it started to fall apart like i was kicking myself because like because of course he wasn't just going to have like flipped a switch and changed that's not how depression works you don't just like have an extra bad day and you think no nope, that's it i'm done with depression i'm going to <laughs> like beat it and and you yeah. know oh, oh if i just try hard i won't be depressed anymore like that's yeah oh, just you, snap like, out of it yeah exactly <laughs> like, I, like i was like of course like what was i thinking um and yeah like you know he it's sort of like i, I mean i, th- I like you know I, I've, I've sort of been through this where it's like you know you he's depressed and then something like this it gets him to get his head above water for a second um but like unless you make drastic changes like the pattern's too established he's gonna his his head's gonna go back under and that's what we see in real time it's immediate it's um, there's no it's like there's no uh, it's he immediately regresses it's like five minutes that he's even a hint of positive and then it's immediately gone yeah not even five minutes like five fucking seconds to, to be like fair, like because he's he was so far under you know and it's like what it took is yeah. um verona spitting in his face and a half day at work to get him to surface for five seconds and then like you know the, the tide just pulls him straight back um yeah. so yeah like it was just what hurt about this is that i fell for it and then in retrospect it was inevitable and i don't know what i was thinking yeah like obviously and, it wasn't just going to be fine from now on yeah but like i think that's great because that's kind of the journey verona goes through like verona gets her hopes up as well and she she like she's like okay I'm gonna give him this chance this seems genuine and then he falls apart yeah. and she's just like what was I thinking and it, as a reader I was right beside her I was like what was I thinking I fell yeah, for it why as well would you... yeah and she has this it's this really sad moment where as she's leaving the scene she thinks to herself like this is my own fault I I gave him a nugget of emotional you know yeah. belief and you know off it's gone <laughs> it's done. Yeah, like I'm, I'm, I'm so morbidly fascinated to see where the relationship between these two goes by mm. the end of the story. Just because, I mean, I don't know where you go from here that isn't just cutting contact or, or at least severely minimizing it. Um, mm. But also, he needs help. Um, yeah, I, like I don't know. I'm also like my my theory at this point is we're going to meet Verona's mum as the summer comes up, and there'll probably be this moment where like, oh. Her dad's not so bad. Mm, that's <laughs> daunting. How how terrible does the mother have to be for VD to be normalized? I mean, like... Verona, yeah. Well, Verona has decided not to live with her mum, and like you know, 
her hometown and, and Lucy and stuff are, are presumably factors in that. But like, yeah, the situation with her dad is so bad. You have to think if her mom was at all not a piece of Anything, shit, yeah, <laughs> it'd be more of a consideration. And like, even Lucy would probably be like, "What about your mom?" Um, yeah. So like, yeah, I, I feel like we're gonna meet Lu- uh, if we meet Verona's mom. It's just gonna be this moment of, "Wow, okay, yeah, she just had no options." Yeah, it's interesting that Verona's mum has never come up as an option, right? Like, you know, it, I think it's in the next chapter where we get a bit of Lucy being like, hey, you know, you can come hang out at my place anytime or we can figure something out, we can do this, we can do that. And Verona's mum is just not an option there, which which means it's not an option because it's even worse of an option than, than her dad, which is crazy. Yeah, like I think the only time we ever sort of hear her mum was, I think Avery briefly brings it up. It's like, oh, you're going to have to go deal with your mum or, or no, when, when Verona's like, oh, I, I, I can't stay here. Avery's like, oh, you're going to go with your mum. And Verona's like, no. And it's just like, it's so immediately dismissed or not even considered. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so Verona steals some money from her dad and... <laughs> leaves uh to go get the pastry that they talked about going to get uh but while she's doing this on this errand for herself she spots a strange looking woman yeah and and so before we get to the woman um and and as we sort of prepare ourselves for the conversation uh avery and verona are going to have in the woods in a minute um i want to talk about this like this moment to me feels like a small example or, or or a preview of like verona going other uh, a, mm. a bit like she you know so she has this moment she tries to connect with her dad he fucks it up um and then you know she goes out alone at night like she basically comments like oh this is must this must be what it's like to be an other i'm on the outside <laughs> you know struggling yeah. to eat my pastry like observing the human folk um, <laughs> classic classic other stuff <laughs> <laughs> um but like, yeah like she she kind of is relishing how she is outside of things like looking in um kind of devoid of emotion and i uh, like at first i was kind of like oh, like i still can't decide if i think this is meant to be a good or a bad thing but i, I think we mm-hmm. get some more conclusive parallels later on um but it, like you can see how much less miserable <laughs> she is in this mm-hmm. mode than she was like at home and how her home situation is pushing her in this direction yeah i mean yeah it's uh it's interesting. You're, uh, the thing that I really liked that you that you mentioned on it is she she kind of clocks this woman um, even without her sight. Like mm. th- that's such a cool beat, right? You, sorry, I, I, I'm realizing I'm skipping ahead in a bit in the notes because you've mentioned you know she clocks this woman. She she shoots on her eyesight and notices that it's the winner whose name we later learn is Brie. And this is exciting because this thread has been dangling for a little bit. Yeah. Um, I've been wanting to, to learn more about this. How the fuck this person survived. <laughs> and now we get the confirmation that it was, they did have help. No, it wasn't Alexander, but yes, it was the Blue Heron Institute, I, I guess. Um, sure. Uh, yeah. But the, you, you, you noted that um, she, Verona clocks her without using her sight, right? Yeah. Like she uses her sight to, find out more about what's going on but like she notices that this woman just seems out of sync uh even without her sight on which is starters good thing because she wasn't even using her sight so points for verona for turning it off for once um Mm. but yeah i mean like i i I was just curious like do we think this means verona is just sort of becoming more attuned to the world that you know she just noticed this like was it just obvious or or is this like another sign that she's becoming more other that those lines are blurring for her yeah i really like that read like she's 
you know, she, we saw that she was switching on her site constantly. It, it seems maybe she's just kind of got a bit of the site just in her everyday, you know, mm. her everyday eyes, her regular old human eyes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that that's so, sort of what's happening. Mm. Um. So, yeah, uh, Verona, you know, realises she needs help here, and so she calls out to Lucy, but Lucy's busy, so she goes with her second choice, Avery, which is tragic. Avery should be everyone's first choice. <laughs> um, and Avery and Snowdrip arrive to help keep an eye on uh, Bree. Avery's never anyone's first choice. That's her defining character trait. Um, <laughs> That's very sad, <laughs> but true. Um, yeah. I, so if, just to jump back a little bit, like I love how we kind of get the confirmation that she's the winner by seeing her true form, like through the site. Like she's still, you know, literally got blood on her hands. Like she's all sorts of fucked up through the site. And it's only like in the real world that she looks so glamorous. And there's almost just this, glamorish feel like that it's a lie to how like you know mm. okay she is in the room and she talks about it a bit later when they when they confront her next chapter um or mm. no it's this chapter i think um but yeah well you know there's that bit where she's sort of like yeah. oh you know it doesn't feel like i'm complete or that part of has left me and it's like i, I don't think it surprises any of us to learn that the hungry choirs like boons were actually bullshit um and that doesn't just make your life perfect like there's this there's this fakery to how okay you are. Yeah, it did feel very fake. Um, yeah, no, I liked it. And and you're right. We we get this confirmation later that if the Hungry Choir is taken out, this, like, ramshackle, you know, life that Brie has managed to cobble together post-victory is just going to collapse again. <laughs> like, the Hungry Choir's, you know, energy is the only thing that's keeping her, um, you know, keeping it together for her. Yeah, but, like, the fact that her, like, form in the site, which is sort of, like, the true vision of things, is still yes. bloodied and whole. Like, like she's – it just says to me that the the any perfection that we sort of see in the real world is is surface level. Um, yes. Like, it doesn't extend yeah. deeper. And that, that's probably where that empty feeling that she's got comes from. Um, but, but yeah, as you said, like, so Verona kind of – it's interesting because <laughs> it kind of seems like Brie wasn't actually trying to run away, but she somehow manages to um and and like this is all going on as verona is thinking i'm terrible at this uh yeah how does she get away <laughs> she just like, slips away from them even though they're they're following her she doesn't know she's being followed and isn't actively trying to avoid them she just kind of somehow slips away yeah well i, I think like uh, it's a funny part of this is verona is like talking about like oh like i'm I'm bad at this stuff. And I think it's funny because especially next chapter, um, Lucy focuses on this a lot, but when we, when we see Verona from the other's perspective, it tends to focus on how insanely good she is at like rocking things in this world. And she just has a bit of an instinct for it. And, and mm. she obviously kind of acknowledges that in her own head too. But like, as with sort of anyone, I, I think she, her own headspace focuses a bit more on her weaknesses. Like whenever these action scenes come up, half of her monologue, internal monologue is just like, I am not, good at this like i'm not the action hero why isn't lucy here uh i like i don't know it's kind of like interesting and and it's good to see like you know her sort of admitting her own faults but like it's just so interesting the way that this dynamic works with the three of them and how like verona's very much coming from this place of this is not me i wish one of the others was handling this whereas we see from lucy's perspective next chapter lucy has this sense of verona is the one who is really good at all this Mm. Mm. yeah yeah, uh, there's an interesting beat. The, the fact that Verona naturally grocks this stuff is really interesting to me because I wonder, we are starting to see 
um, Lucy and Avery have their own niches start to get carved out for them. Like mm. Verona just seems to be the one who gets the general practice the best. But, you know, Avery has, is starting to get this, like, escape artist, um, you know, theme to her, right? Um, sure. Uh, you know, whenever he comes in, Snowdrop talks about how Avery has been being shown by Snowdrop and the goblins, like, weird hiding spots and weird, like, methods of movement uh, with, like, a goblin hidey hole that she can travel through. And she's obviously got the escape rope and all these other things that let her just, like, move around in funny ways. Um I, I love that despite Verona taking an early lead, uh, the others are becoming like having these really weird little niches that I like. Yeah. And uh, I, I, let's, let's talk about that more when we get to the end. Cause I pulled out a pale predictor thing. That's, that's actually somewhat related to this. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see where Verona ends up considering uh, like, I can't help but draw the parallel to Verona thinking, oh, I'm not good in action to what Nicolette was saying about how, uh oh god what do you what are the bellingers what are the uh augers um yeah how augers they're not meant to be in action like they are meant to be sort of prepared like if you end up in action as an auger it means you've already fucked up um Mm. so i can't help but sort of draw links like that and you know verona likes solving the puzzles um although she also doesn't because she doesn't care about things like the carmine beast beyond (laughs) treating it like a puzzle I think she actually says in this chapter, she's like, I just want to solve it because no one else could, which is actually probably a very practitionary way of thinking about it as a problem. She doesn't actually care about solving things. She's just like, ooh, I can win. Well, I think it is her, she is like naturally curious as well. Yeah. Right. She's a Um, cat. Yeah. She, and (laughs) we all know curiosity is great for cats. Um, But it's not, it's not that she wants to solve it for the reason of, you know, solving and figuring out who the murderer is or whatever. It's because she just kind of wants to solve things to gain knowledge. Yeah. Whereas like Lucy has seen an injustice or or, or like a murder yes. and she she wants to bring people to account for that. Resolve it. Yeah. Uh, and she see she sees it. She she comes at this very much from like a duty perspective. Whereas Verona's yeah. like, oh, riddle. <laughs> yes. We can learn things and use it to gain power over people. Mm. Um there's also the bit and I, I just want to bring this up. Verona is like trying to track down. This is before Snowdrop and Avery have shown up. She's trying to track down mm. Bray, and uh, she just asks a weird meat man for directions, and then gets them, and then later on laments that there are no good bits of meat to ask. <laughs> that was so weird when she did that. I did a double take because I was like, <laughs> "Wait, did she just talk to one of these like meat plastic sheet things? <laughs> is that like?" And that's the perfect way to represent how how far she is sliding into this world <laughs> yeah, especially because like i don't think i'd fully grasped how horrifying these things were even at the point like remember a couple of i think it was the start of this arc when verona mm. was like for the first time the bloody pieces of meat in cocoons had started to feel ominous and then we get like more details on how fucking weird and terrifying they are here and i'm just like so we're back to these things just being cool and not ominous because this yeah, sounds being, scary being as fuck BFFs. <laughs> And yeah, wait, wait, yeah. there's just, there's no hesitation. She just sees this like weird writhing meat person wrapped in like this plasticky veil stuff. And she's like, hey, did you see a girl go past you? Yeah. I mean, it seems to be, it doesn't give her any useful information, but it seems to be like in a helpful mood, right? Her points are in the right direction. Yeah. Right. Like, is that just 
is that just a thing? She's going to just have these like weird, I mean, I guess they're spirits, right? Um, I assume so. It's yeah. like flesh spirits that she can just like <laughs> chill out and chat to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess. Um, so Verona and Avery uh, have a bit of a bonding moment as they're tracking down Bree, a bonding over basically the deterioration of their home lives uh, before Verona drops the bomb that she's planning on becoming an other. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, before we get there, I do want to touch on a bunch of things. So first of all, I, I find it interesting that Avery turns out to be such a good tracker because I thought, mm. aren't deer the ones that usually get tracked? <laughs> get tracked. Yeah. <sighs> like I wonder if it's just deer imagery is associated with tracking and that's good enough or whether I should now be worried about Avery getting chased down by something. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I did want to touch on, like, as you said, like they, they sort of bond over um, both of their kind of terrible home lives at the moment. And I just had to quote this one line um, where Verona's talking about what just happened with her dad. And she says, yeah, the usual pretty much just, this was maybe the last straw. And then Avery ask, asks what happened. And then the next quote, oh, the next line is, Verona saw blood. She pointed and then tracked the trail off to the side. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I, uh, that's, that's such a cheeky little bait and switch. I, I love that. Um, yep. I, I just love the imagery in these stories, how it just gets to be so direct. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's like in your face in a way that it's like <laughs> on the nose in a way that is very delicious. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. Verona tells Avery that she's thinking of not sticking around is the euphemism she decides to use before elaborating that she means she's thinking of becoming another. And before we start talking about that, um, Avery, great, 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 great stuff. Avery, good work. <laughs> she, she's like very non-judgmental and doesn't freak out at Verona, which you could and theoretically should. Um, but she, she responds in a very good way where she is supportive, expresses concern, but listens and doesn't like make it so that Verona can't talk to her about this, which is very important if you're going to kind of bring her back into the world of humanity eventually. Yeah. Especially cause like I, I was so relieved when this started happening because like Verona has no one else she can talk to this about. Like just immediately off the bat, it's related to the practice stuff. So that brings things down to the Kenneteers and the others. Yeah. Um, the others are out as we established at the start of the yes. uh, chapter and, and knew anyway. And so it's like down to Lucy and Avery. She can't talk to Lucy about it because they're sort of too close. So Avery is the, the new friend is, I was just like, Oh, thank Christ. <laughs> we, I, I needed this so bad to hear Verona actually bounce it off someone. And I, I agree. I thought Avery, handles it like very well just sort of like reacting and and not trying to lay down any judgments too soon just kind of poking and prodding at the idea mm. Um, mm. yeah like don't shut down the conversation let verona yeah. talk to you about it but don't enable her you know like she walks that line quite a tough line to walk but she walks it she walks it well yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I, I also think we should talk on Avery's situation that she sort of outlines here because, um, like, that, that's it's not nothing either. Like, you know, essentially, as we already knew, Avery's fucking traumatized by all the shit that just happened to her. Um, and she just can't rely on her family for support. Uh, her siblings just aren't equipped to give it to her, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, 
but also like her parents don't give it to her and so like her grumble was really the closest thing she had to a, a rock of support in the family and that's currently the sore spot mm. and just sort of hearing her outline this i was just like oh like like all she's got at home really is snowdrop and that's barely counts as uh, like as home yes um, and, and i love how verona is sort of like you need to fight for this like it, it sort of it, it, this circles back to what verona was thinking about about how long things have been miserable with her dad she's sort of like don't let this pattern get etched in like you have to fight for this otherwise you'll end up like me and my dad which doesn't seem recoverable um and i like that so much as like you know like i think we've both had and then the girls bring it up like lucy and verona have now both sort of had these moments with avery where they're like i have been through something like this here is my advice on how you should handle it and i feel like verona's very much comes from this place of i wish i had done something please don't make my mistake which is rough mm. because she was like, 12 13 like she shouldn't have had to do anything but yeah um, at least she's around to try and stop it happening from others even if it wasn't actually her fault yeah 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 oh it's sad it's such a sad i don't know beat yeah it's it's a sad plot line this i don't think there's a good resolution for this verona turning into another stuff no and that's why i'm so fascinated to to see where it goes because i can't picture it myself and those are the most interesting storylines um mm. yeah and, and so i guess yeah to, to talk about the the verother thing um yeah like that because she has this one paragraph where she she kind of outlines to Avery how she's feeling about it or, or, or what what she's thinking. It's like you know, oh, she kind of toys with it as this an idea as this idea of an escape, um, you know. But it's not real. But she's doing it more and more, and she's worried it like will become more and more real. And uh, at least to me, that just like that that just drew to my mind to, like suicidal ideation. And yeah, for sure. Like, Really, I guess any preparation for any big, drastic, or violent action, I suppose. But um, like I guess yeah. this was just sort of what maybe sort of lock in as I, I, I definitely don't think we're meant to view Verona turning into another as a good thing at this point. Um, like she sort of outlines, mm. she knows this isn't going to fix things. It's like all of the others have jobs and work and stuff they have to maintain in their own way. But she's sort of like, but I'll lose humanity, I'll lose my feeling, and that's what she kind of wants from it at this point. And it's just like, oh, fuck. <sighs> yeah, it's um, the more she lets herself think about it, the more it normalizes it for her, right? It's, mm. it, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't like where it's going. It definitely, it feels like, like the, the euphemisms that she uses to describe it are the kinds of euphemisms you would use for, you know, suicide or death. And that's, I think that's an intentional choice by Wabo to make it feel like it's a, it's, it's an end to to Verona's yeah. life as we know it, yeah. right? Like, like that concern of the the um, escalation from something you just sort of dream about to an idea that becomes more and more real, like, is exactly that sort of thinking, um, which yeah, like, feels designed to make us worry about it. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, I can see a read on this where it's not a bad thing that she turns into another, right? Like where it's her becoming, yeah. I mean, like, you know, becoming Lucy's familiar and it's like a sitcom. It's called Two and a Half Humans. And, <laughs> but that the way that it's described by Verona in her head and the way that it's described by Wabo, it doesn't feel like it. that's what it is. Yeah, and just the way we see all of the others around here, like it just doesn't seem like something to aspire to that much, I guess. Like Miss seemed like the coolest and the happiest and even she wasn't, 
that but like like every other in this town is their own kind of miserable and empty Mm, yeah yep uh including verona (laughs) fair um so just quickly i thought this was weird i don't know did you think this was weird there's this bit where they're talking to snowdrop and she's got a new shirt and i'm just gonna read it out because I don't know, maybe this felt weird to you, but it just seemed a little strange to me, this section. So I'll read out the quote. Um, Love the shirts, Avery said. Where do you get them? Verona asked. www.palewebserial.wordpress.com forward slash merch, Snowdrop squeaked. The prices are really high and the quality is terrible. Did that seem (laughs) weird that Wabo just inserted an ad for his merch into this story? Oh, if only I could say yes, it did. Um... (laughs) Uh, but seriously, I yep. I fully expect um, this. It must just be Wabo is about to try out the new merch features that are on Patreon, right? Like, <laughs> I can't imagine Snowjob exists for any other reason. I look, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna make this the last time I sort of do this because otherwise I'm gonna be doing it forever. So I just uh, one final time, please, you know, Wabo, if you're listening, consider yeah. selling Snowdrop T-shirts. I will buy all of them. Um, I, he must but I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop. That. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop talking about it now because otherwise, I just feel like we're gonna be pressuring and annoying him. Um, but yes, I would go. Oh my god, I would buy <laughs> Snowdrop merchandise. I just want the which. What is it? I have style. I have class. I scream at own shirts. <laughs> I, I thought post oh, off boy. in the next chapter is my new favorite. Post off. Post off is good. Um. Uh. We learn a bit more about blunt. <laughs> We're just we're jumping around here a bit, but that's fine. Um, we learn a bit more about blunt munch. Blunt. We have some blunt munch time. Some quality blunt munch time. Um, Fine. So first of all, he explains how to make a goblin ward, which is basically like you get a rodent or a small round animal, and you basically turn it into like a fart bomb, right? <laughs> that you then like listen for. Um, yeah, so that's fun. Yeah, it's basically what if mines, but horrifying and grosser. Yeah, and then there's this other bit. There's this other bit where Blunt Munch reveals that he can like summon other goblins by spitting into his hand and sticking it in a tree. (laughs) And I'm just kind of like, man, goblins are the best thing that Wabo's ever come up with. Like, you can talk about the the difference between the Wabo works and which ones you like more and stuff, but I do think objectively it is correct that goblins are the best (laughs) creation that Wabo has come up with. I I love the bit where uh, Blunt is introducing them all with the polite variants of their names, and um, there's one where he still uses the word snatch. Um, yes, and Toad Swallow uh, scolds him by saying, "So disappointing! I told you to mind your mother molesting manners." Which is just like Toad Swallow, my dude. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't think you're doing so hot on that front yourself right now. Um, yeah. It's just it's so funny. And the idea that Snatch is the the child friendly version of that name is also kind of equally hilarious. I love how we're hiding. There's just an extra layer of joke to the Goblin names when we know we're getting like the cleaned up versions. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> yep, yep. Also, uh, I love I that love Blunt them. Blunt Munch has to pay them double if it's not a fight. I know, I loved it that too. <laughs> Goblins are the best. How can you not love them? They're so good. Um, there's this bit yeah. later, I'm just going to say it now, when they're in the fight with Zed 
and he tries to drive away and just one of the goblins is lying under the tire and the tire is just like it's trying to drive over him but getting no purchase on this goblin's skin i i, I burst out laughing at that it's fucking amazing like oh, except God. it is getting traction on the granny panties that it's wearing yes uh, which, but they're which not right they're up, magical they don't granny tear. Don't tear. <laughs> So fucking stupid, I love it. (laughs) (sighs) Anyway, so um, Verona and Avery catch up to Bree, who is in the company of Zed, this uh, totally tubular technomancer, who (laughs) is, of course, curious about Kennet, um, and they try unsuccessfully to dissuade him from further investigation. I feel really bad for Avery and Verona here because they go to all the effort right before they confront him. They like dress up in you know their their silly witch outfits, like yeah, trying to come off as, as yeah. proper witches. And yeah. then this dude just slams any of that professionalism down by introducing himself as Zed, apprentice to Rad Ray Sunshine, which is the most fucking wizardiest name I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Like <laughs> the vibe of Zed and you know Rad Ray Sunshine and all this stuff is like, it's so it's good. So cool. I, uh, yeah, it's great. The fact that this person is a serious threat and drives around fucking playing cassettes in a Walkman or whatever, <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I think we'll talk about this at length when we get to the extra material at the end. Um, but yeah, it's such a cool aesthetic. I, I instantly kind of just liked Zed and I was like I hope we see more of him so I, I was like I was very excited when 3.7 ended and I was like cool <laughs> yeah um uh yeah so they have this encounter with Zed like and it we should touch on the fact that Zed is now the second practitioner that is curious about Kenneth and it's just gonna keep happening right like I think we've we've gotten past the point where Kenneth can remain a secret even yeah. without Alexander's like thing going off in five years, right? Zed is is now curious, and it's ju- it just feels like the secret's out. There's no, it, they're like fighting against an avalanche, right? Yeah, I, I think the moment the Carmine Beast died in the town, that that was settled. There was maybe a shred of a chance when Miss was running things, but again, the second Miss left, it was just like I think we talked about this last week. It was just like, I just don't see how. Like there can't genuinely be a belief among the Kennet others that a long-term solution is to try and stick to their current status quo and it'll work out. Um, like this just, it feels like there's no way that that could possibly happen. They're not going to get left alone. I feel like somebody must be sitting on, uh, you know, presumably a carmine beast shaped silver bullet and they're just biding time. Like, they can't honestly believe they can do this forever. Somebody must be kind of like, hey, if we can just do this for two more weeks, I can do X, Y, Z, and then it will be fine. Mm, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know what they're waiting for, right? Like, <laughs> the, whatever has been put into place now is clearly far enough along that it's 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 self-propagating, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, yeah, and uh, as you said, like, there's too many eyes looking in on the town now. Like, it's just they can't. They can't expect all that attention to go away even after the Carmine Beast stuff is settled. Mm, mm, yeah. <sighs> I don't know. I, like, the other thing is, we, we'll get into this a bit more in the next chapter, I guess, but the Kennet others feel like they're acting like this is salvageable still. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's not because uh, John does say, hey, this is going to be our life now, like multiple times a day, potentially, this is going to be our life. So maybe they are kind of getting it, but it doesn't feel like they're 
acting in a way that is consistent with things you know things are at this point yeah exactly which is why i have just come up with the theory that at least some of them are sitting on the the whole plan all along with what was happening with the carmine beast or something because that makes more sense to me than these guys just being like yeah this is salvageable yeah maybe that is it i don't know um so uh i guess we'll talk about zed's specific like powers in in the bonus bit right when we Mm. when we talk about some of this stuff more but um you know, a fight breaks out between uh, Zed and this techno ghosts versus the goblins and John and Avery and Verona, uh, I guess, in order of effectiveness. Moa, would you put goblins above John or John above goblins? I think goblins oh, won the day, didn't they? Oh, uh, yeah. But like, you could argue that's because John was keeping, like, the keeping static mullet thing yeah. um, in check. Like, that seemed like the most powerful thing. So it's kind of. Wait, hold on. I've just got to stop for a second here, Elliot. Do you have you ever seen the show called Regular Show? I I know of it. I haven't actually watched okay. it because it. I swear to God, maybe someone else posted this on Reddit in response to the chapter as well. But Zed and his like techno eighties ghosts feels like it's literally right out of Regular Show. It was crazy to me. It, it felt <laughs> like it's it's a very tubular kind of show <laughs> where okay. they literally fight ghosts of um a cassette tape at one time. Whatever, it doesn't matter. But I just thought it was great. Um. So it was, it's a really fun vibe for a fight. Um, yeah. I, just, I really enjoyed it. I got massive. Uh, there's that one episode of Doctor Who with the evil static people. That's sort of the vibe that I had in my head during this, which is a bit more mm. 50s than, than 80s. Um, so I know it's not like spot on, but uh, like, yeah, just just this this whole 80s vibe. We'll, we'll get into it, but it's so much fun. Um, mm. But yeah, it's it's a cool fight. Yeah, although it, it, I, it really struck me. I mean, especially Verona, but also to an extent Avery, it really struck me how powerless they are in this engagement, right? Um, Verona has a few tricks, but it's mostly John and the goblins carrying the weight. Um, And the other thing is uh, the tricks that Verona and Avery do use are just ones that have been given to them by, you know, the goblins mostly or John or or Edith or whatever. Um, So again, if they're going to come up against these Kennet others, they just have nothing in their pocket that they can use. Well, yeah, because I think that's the the interesting thing about the practitioner other dynamic that we we've sort of started to explore in the last arc. So it's like the others are the ones who actually have the the power. Like the practitioners bind the others and then use them. But like I don't think we've actually seen a practitioner like directly confront someone. Right? Like it's always through others. Um, mm. maybe the, the exception here would be Nicolette, who was arguably a tool of Alexander's. Um, yes. And but she's... also runes aren't quite, don't quite fit into that, but they don't seem super strong anyway. So yeah. I and mean, you're still sort of accessing the spirits. It's like, you know, the, yeah, true. It, it kind of feels like the spirits and the others are the, the proletariat actually doing the, the work. And then the, the practitioners just sort of sit there and, um, you know, reap most of the benefits. Reap the benefits. Yeah. Um, yeah, because, like, I agree. Like, this fight, like, Avery zips around and does some cool shit. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we already sort of touched on, like, Verona is not an action hero. She kind of wanders around and is like, what would Lucy do? Mm, mm, yeah. Um, uh, where are we up to? Oh, sorry. Uh, cool. So, uh, the... <laughs> okay, let's touch on this, because this is the funniest part as well. There's this bit where a car comes past... And it, it, it literally is, um, 
like when kids are playing cricket in the street and a car comes in and one of them quickly <laughs> grabs the ball and they stand to the side so that the car can and get back to playing. It's ridiculous, right? Yeah, I, 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 this is like a bit of a trope in particularly urban fantasy or anything where there's like a secret underworld yeah. thing, like civilians ignorantly passing through and stopping the epic underworld fight where like everyone has to pause. Fuck, it's even a Toy Story thing. Um, mm. you know, when you have this epic fight going on, then just some like ignorant civilians are just like, oh, hey guys, what's going on? And everyone's holding knives behind their back. And then the second they're gone, it, like the fight just kicks <laughs> you straight get back, back to the, the fight. Game. Yeah. Like it's a it's a it's a trope I'll never get sick of. Like it's funny every time. It was very funny. I I really loved it. <laughs> and the way Zed is kind of like a bit um put off and he's like, um you should put up connection blockers so that doesn't happen. <laughs> and and uh, Verona whose response is like, uh well you shouldn't you shouldn't trespass, so fuck yeah. you. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, so this kind of causes a break in the fight and, and then the negotiations reopen. Um and wow, this Blue Heron Institute, like students and teachers can't attack each other rule has really come in handy for this group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a good call. Um, but I believe it's Verona who's sort of like, hey, do you go to this school? Like, uh, good, good idea. Um, good get, yeah. But like, I mean, that's the whole, like, this whole thing of like Blue Heron Institute students can't attack each other. Like it's, it's such bullshit because it's this like facade of cooperation but yes. like we've we've never seen two students associated with this institute like give any signs that there's any sense of cooperation it's it's more this like mutually assured success thing where it's like you can't actively hurt me too much directly but like still try to undermine me and everything like it's 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 the most toxic bullshit rule mm, yeah but it um, does keep working you're right like it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's working great. out so far. yeah <laughs> i i think that this is the this is the best thing for them so far. This is the thing that has saved them in two different encounters is uh, rules technicality. We're both students. So, yeah, but it's like, okay, fuck off. so the only reason we're not trying to kill each other is because we're both affiliated with this school. Like, oh, this is a great state of affairs. Yeah. Wait, we should. And thus the we, balance was restored. Yeah, like, like if, if the only thing stopping everyone from killing each other is this rule associated with this school, like I don't consider this a stable situation. Yeah um yeah no it's not <laughs> um yeah and really that's the impression that you leave this chapter with right is the fact that this whole kenneth situation is just too far it's the cat's out of the bag right it, yeah there's no way it's going to be a secret yeah yeah uh, yeah i mean yeah we already sort of touched on this but I, i'm just i wait the garden uh, or you know what was it the ecosystem there's this new stuff in yeah. the biome now like or the biome's fucked we need to change something we need yeah. new garden strategy because this one ha is going to get infected yep um so yeah and that's where we leave our 3.6 on to 3.7 out in 3.7 which begins and we're in lucy's perspective uh and lucy and verona are keeping an eye on the uh the the bed and breakfast just in case brie comes back and as they're just chilling keeping an eye on it uh rowan enters the music store where they are hiding out oh, wait are they in a music store they're just in a yes. kind of there, yeah, it's, it's a okay, music cool. store. Yeah. Which is honestly the right the right kind of place because I can imagine Zed would if he's gonna go anywhere, it's gonna be a music <laughs> store. Exactly. Um I, I love the opening like line to this chapter because it, it's just sort of um like Lucy looking at this woman shambling with all sorts of bits of metal coming out of her. And because I did like a triple 
take with this one i was like at first i was like oh my god is this some crazy other that's been let loose on them and then i realized and then and then they started talking about the music store and i'm like oh my god is this just some woman with piercings and then mm. then then i realized it would have been specified this was lucy's site and actually we're seeing like what i assume is some sort of like meth addict or or, or something um who like just has like a bunch of wounds and those are manifesting in the site as a bunch of swords sticking into her uh which is just tragic um but like it did such a good job of putting me back in the lucy mindset like and because this is something that we sort of have to do in every chapter of of this um story is sort of put ourselves back in a mindset and i was immediately like this opening paragraph and the confusion and the violent imagery i was immediately like on in danger mode and then i sort of realized it was harmless but not quite though like and i think like that's just it just put me in the lucy headspace because i was like on a sort of not full alert but like always kind of skeptical of everything around me because of that confusion at the start yeah i had the same vibe too and it is i guess it's just being in lucy's head means you're always a bit more tense and on edge um there's this later bit where some random like uh you know uh, a drug addict from from outside the the b&b just like starts moving up to her to uh, like with purpose um and it's very, it's very much, it just feels like Lucy is in danger constantly, you yeah. know, which is crazy. Um, but that's the headspace that, you know, that's what being Lucy is like, I guess. Yeah. And I think that intentional confusion that the opening lines have, like, sort of just helps get you in that headspace because you're like, are we in danger? No. I mean, not, well, not no, but not as much as I thought, but like, okay, yeah. like, you know, I, I, I'm on edge a little bit yeah um an interesting thing beat that i noticed on my second read through was we get this this part with laurie who is rowan's girlfriend and she's she's basically uh trying to promote um like assisted suicide right like she's pro euthanasia for the elderly um which we don't have to get into the politics of that but i just think it was interesting considering that last chapter we we touched on the idea of verona and what is essentially suicidal ideation and now we have Laurie who is promoting assisted suicide. I, there isn't a concrete link there and the characters don't connect on that level, but I think this is potentially an interesting way for Verona to to poll Lucy's thoughts on this in a more roundabout way. Um, Yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting because like I... At least for me, and this probably isn't a debate we need to have here or anything, but um, mm. like I, I see euthanasia in terms of like, you know, the elderly with... Or, or people with terminal illnesses is kind of a different thing to um, like something like Verona's situation. But sure, yeah, like like I I, I guess I see the connection. Um, like for me, this this more sort of started to jump out. Like it, it does sort of touch on like I guess some of the justice stuff because part of justice is obviously like you, your free will or your right to choose various things. Um, that's sort of all interrelated to any sort of justice system because part of justice is determining what is a crime and what needs justice to be served on it. Um, so it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see if this ties into anything. Um, but it definitely establishes, like primarily, immediately establishes Laurie as someone Lucy can like because she's one of these people who actually likes to do things. <laughs> yes, um, she's she's proactive. Yeah, exactly. Like she doesn't just like to talk about stuff. So she's she's actually pursuing a, a cause. Um, which so Lucy's immediately like, I like you. Um, yeah, defs, good honor. 
yeah. Um, but to, to 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 touch on what you were saying about Lucy and Verona, I mean, there's some real ominous stuff where Lucy's like looking at Verona and thinking on her, and there's this, these lyrics to the song that she's listening to, which are basically all going on about like, oh, I I miss you and I, and mm. oh, you know, I I hope you understand why I couldn't stay. And it, was, it just it just felt like this really ominous foreshadowing. Yeah, um, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it'll be nothing. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Elliot, probably. Yeah, just after we have, like, Verona start talking about it to Avery, then suddenly Lucy's getting... Lucy's chapter's giving us mad, these two are drifting apart vibes. I'm sure it's nothing. Yeah. Um, <sighs> yeah, so, so Lucy and Verona get into a conversation with Rowan and they basically call him out a bit on, on some stuff that he does where he's not quite being a good big brother, but he wants to get cred for being a good big brother which i thought was funny yes well i i I, i'll touch on this a lot more but like rowan wants credit for not being a bad big brother basically uh he conflates not being bad with being great um and i I mean that you know they do have kerry and sheridan who are both quite annoying Um, yeah exactly the other boy whose name i've forgotten but i think it's like dylan or declan Declan, yeah. He's annoying as well. So Um, by that metric, Rowan is the best sibling. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But again, best does not mean great. Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah, I I think it's interesting. I I just sort of measure, like, like, Laurie to me seems introduced to someone who's, like, proactive and does things, and that's good. Yes. Um, And that's basically, I think, largely introduced to introduce Rowan as not that. Yes, he's passive as heck. Yeah, exactly. Um, Like, he, he doesn't do anything bad. But he doesn't do anything good either. <laughs> like he just yeah, he doesn't do anything bad because he doesn't do anything. Yeah, exactly. And like, there's this really great bit where Lucy's sort of thinking about how most adults have like daggers of some kind. Like everyone is yeah. carrying some sort of damage and, and emotional baggage. And she looks at Rowan and Laurie, and Laurie has some of her own. But Rowan is just kind of pristine, and he maybe has some around the edges of him like he's got this faint bit of pain to his aura but like mostly it's just pristine mm. and i think mm. that's really what this bit is establishing and what we're doing with rowan here um is he's just like he hasn't had to fight like you know so he just kind of doesn't get it like he's i'd say his crime is probably obliviousness more than more than anything else like he just sort of doesn't yeah. get it He he hasn't had to do anything so that's why he's just sort of content with like oh well you know just keep keep doing it like it's not wrong things are fine right now um if it ain't broke don't fix it from his perspective right yeah and like this is this is great moment where he almost makes a good point about like he's like oh you know i don't want to like drown or or smother avery by like constantly like asking her how she is um yeah and there was there was a brief moment where i was like okay that's not a bad point like i can see why he would think that at least that seems fair um and then they're sort of like oh well we think she'd like it um why don't you do it? And he's like, oh, well, you know, they don't have to do it to the others. And it's just, oh, you know, that seems like a whole lot of work, you know? And I was just like, well, <laughs> never mind, you fucking idiot. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, he's just, I, I really like how he's, he, because we see more of him here than we've seen in any of the Avery chapters. And I think that that's yeah. like very deliberate. Like, it's kind of like, this is, <laughs> he doesn't interact with Avery because, yes. particularly Avery is someone who, some, like, people need to go and interact with her. And, if he's not going to step up, like he's introduced this great example of um, I, like, I guess privilege. And we're going to talk a lot about that later on in the chapter, I think, but mm. like, he's just, he just doesn't get it. Yeah, no, he definitely doesn't. Um, although it's, it really emphasizes again, how 
great this trio is and how dependable their relationship with each other is. Like uh, Lucy and Verona here basically are the perfect um, defenders of Avery, right? Like even though it's not a thing, it's not a thing that she's asked or anything, they basically played the situation perfectly, pushing Rowan, in my opinion, just the right amount to actually force him to actually think about, you know, how are you treating Avery? Is that something you actually care about? And it's not... Yeah, would... It's would doing something pushing. help? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I agree. They're great. They're, like, the, the wholesomeness b- between these three is just so perfect. Yeah, uh, I agree. Like, I, it, it's always so great how these three just seem to immediately stick up for each other um, without hesitation yeah. and have each other's backs. It's always heartwarming. And um, let's just forget the weird lyrics thing I was talking about before. The three of them together forever, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, cool. So Lucy and Verona uh, start to head off to a meeting with the other others, and they bring in Snowdrop and the goblins to cover for them at the B&B. Yep, just a friendly reminder that uh, Pop and Drop are just a match made in heaven. Like This weird greeting they have for each other where they stick their hands in the air and scream at each other was just... <laughs> I don't understand it, but it was fucking delightful. Yeah, Pop and Drop are the best, aren't they? Um and uh well yeah so there's this moment i alluded to earlier where one of the drug addicts from outside the you know the parking lot um has this moment of like coming at lucy like clearly coming at lucy and and i don't know what it like it felt like there's something up there i don't know what it was maybe it was just meant to be you know they're they're coming after lucy because she's a, a little black girl and they're they're i don't know a racist coming to enact some kind of violence on her. they get distracted by what is assumed to be a goblin just kind of like you know keeping an eye out for them Um, that's what i assumed yeah but i don't know it it feels like there's something more going on here like something karmically is going against lucy here that just kind of makes this drug addict come at her yeah i agree there was definitely i tied it to the race thing as a theory or just because it comes after this moment where she sees a confederate flag because What are you doing with that in Canada, for starters, you idiot? I know, right? Um, <laughs> you didn't fight in the fucking American Civil War. <laughs> I, I, I've I have seen those in in rural Australia as well, and it's it's very oh. confusing because it's like not only is it disgusting, Yikes. but it's not relevant here. Um, yeah, there's so. not even what do you what what can you yeah. even hide behind? <laughs> like, oh, it's about um, their culture that I'm, I really want to support. Like, it's yeah, such like, nonsense. Um, so, like, I agree. That was where my mind jumped to. But, like, I, I, agree, I agree with this moment. It feels like it's something, but I don't know what it is. Mm. Uh, like, it, it feels like one of those things, you know, put the pin in the chalkboard. Or not the chalkboard, the corkboard. Um, and <laughs> Don't put pins in your chalkboard, Elliot. <laughs> you just scrape you pins across your chalkboard. It makes a great yeah. noise. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I, I get. It. This feels like one of those things. You, you pin it on the corkboard and you watch. You watch for it because I, I agree. It, it feels significant, but I, I don't feel like we're equipped yet to to talk about why this happened or what it means. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Lucy and Verona uh, beam their way over to the meeting spot, getting some good uh, sunburns along the way. Yes, uh, don't slip, slop, slap with glamour, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, this was fun. The fact that they just were like, oh, let's turn into light and beam our way there. Like, it's ridiculous, but why not? Why shouldn't you be able to do this? <laughs> because Marisica is a dark fairy. Yes, sorry. This and is light type attacks are super effective against dark type <laughs> fairy. So, yeah, I, true. I mean, again, this is just like one of those 
things in this world that I love so much because there's so many moving parts and it's so imagery based that I was like, oh, I don't understand why this is wrong. And then like the second Marisica was like, you used sunlight with my glamour. I was like, oh yeah, obviously, because she's like a dark fairy. Like I, I, I just love how I can so often be caught off guard by things in this world because there's so many moving parts and I don't know what to expect. And then when it gets explained to me, I'm like, oh yeah, that was obvious. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the perfect kind of thing of like, yes, of course that makes sense. She's a dark fairy type mm. um, Pokemon. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> I'm just thinking about what Pokemon type all of the others are now. Um, <laughs> anyway, oh, there's a discussion question. Uh, well, what you did. okay. So <laughs> we've got dark fairy from Rishika. I think fighting fairy for Gillum. Maybe some kind of dark psychic for Alpi. We've got fire, obviously, for Edith. For Edith, yeah. Uh, maybe dark type, just plain dark for Matthew. I think the goblins would probably be poison type. I, I reckon Matthew is, is dark normal. Dark, oh, dark normal. What a fun combo. Have we missed anyone? What other can others miss? Would probably have been a ghost type, I think, realistically. Yeah, yeah, I'd go with that. Um, did you do. You did John, right? And the goblins. I think John's, I would put John as fighting and maybe steel secondary. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. No yeah. water types, huh? Yeah. Edith, Who, Edith keeping yeah. them out. Yeah, Edith can't stand them. Um, um, anyway. Now, what were we talking about? <laughs> oh, well, so we're talking about uh, this this failed attempt to be sunbeams. Um, yes. I, I also want to bring up and, and, and ask what you thought. There's like this weird argument that Lucy and Verona sort of have as they start to get ready where Lucy's kind of like, okay, let me show you how this works. And Verona's like, yeah, well, you have to show me because you've been hogging it. And then Lucy's like, well, <laughs> my gift. And and yeah. Verona sort of gets all like, well, you know, comrade, um, you know, we should be sharing them. Um, and Lucy gets, it's weird. I'm both like, Lucy gets weirdly territorial and Verona gets weirdly like entitled to them. And I, I, I'm wondering what you make of this little exchange. Oh, I don't know. I think they're just it, it reminded me of um of the fight over Alpi as a familiar. I think it's just Verona wants to have all the toys, honestly, I think is where it comes from. Yeah, it just it was it was just a bit curious to me that uh Lucy was so protective of it. Um I don't know. Well I, like... I, I, I would tie that back to the fact that Lucy is quite excited or at least happy and gloats a bit when she gets the glamour more than mm. uh verona does i think it is just a, like a bit so of it's a bit of an insecurity to... thing exactly like verona's the best at it so why can't lucy have something that's her own yeah yeah because we've had little bits of moments like this from all of them like uh there's avery stealing the chocolate bar in arc one that's a it's an old reference um yeah. there was a bit where they went to a convenience store last week and they pulled money and then Verona went to keep the change and Lucy was like, hey, you're going to share that, right? And Verona just smiles at her and it never comes up again. Um, not good so, at Verona, is she? Yeah, well, I, I think all three of them have had moments where they haven't been great at sharing. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I, and, and just the way the glamour works in this, I want to talk about as well, because it's so cool. So the my understanding on this, and I, I don't think I got this 100%, but like the way you turn yourself into these things is you kind of... You try to draw yourself to match them, but you particularly mm. you, you sort of go into the gaps or the the darkest bits or the lightest bits, mm. and the glamour kind of you know figures out what you're trying to become and sort of spreads. And, and so there's this interesting thing where like you know if you sort of start a lie, glamour just 
naturally gravitates towards filling in the gaps. Like I guess it's like mm. sort of the same as when you turn into an animal. Like you just turn some bits of yourself into an animal, and then the glamour's kind of like, oh, okay, like you know, and 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 does the rest of it. It's just such an interesting property of it. Like it's such a fascinating tool. The way you kind of have to steer it. Like you could write a whole book where this is the only thing the practitioner has. Like they've just got yeah. an unlimited supply of glamour and all the tips and tricks like, oh, you know, you let it in slightly the wrong direction and you're this type of cat instead of the other type of cat and that's bad because X, Y, Z. Yeah, I, I really love the glamour stuff. One of the things I really liked about it is um, when Verona's complaining about her sunburn, Marissa's like, no, no, don't do that because then it'll make it more mm. real. And she immediately stops and I'm like, damn, that's so cool. Like it's the yeah. power of belief like made manifest yeah and it's exactly what we saw with nicolette um with her eyes as well um yeah i just love this way it sort of helps you to finish a lie like you sort of start telling it feels very like you know marisica you know she she just has to start things and the glamour helps like complete it such an interesting Mm. idea Mm. yeah um Love glamour. Uh, so yeah, the trio arrive at the meeting, and we start to hear how the votes played out. Which is yeah. yeah. Um, before then, there's this bit where Charles is upset because he's like, apparently, I'm on the same tier as the creature who eats walnuts, shell, and all. And can <laughs> I just say, Charles, you wish you were on Cherry Pop's tier. Cherry Pop <laughs> is so many tiers higher than you, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, in what world is being the same tier as Cherry Pop a bad thing? Cherry Pop yeah. is top tier. She's double yeah. S tier. Um, Charles wishes, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I do. Like, the the recurring joke of everyone just unnecessarily shitting on Charles just never stops being funny to me. It probably shouldn't be because it's kind of mean, but I just, I always think it's funny. And maybe that, you know, I'm just part of the problem. I also enjoy shitting on Charles. Mm. I'm falling into yeah. the karma trap as well. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Uh. Actually, there's one other thing before we get into the results of the. There's one other thing I want to touch on here, which is um. There's this moment where Lucy, where they, when when the the others are kind of starting to talk about these votes and how they feel about the Kenneth, about the practitioners, about the trio. There's this moment where Lucy feels like it feels familiar, and the familiarity that she connects it to is basically being dismissed and judged for, and we're left to imply, you know as at the hands of racism and prejudice right like yeah yeah and it's this interesting note that made me realize like yeah that's the way that they are being treated they're being treated like they are just being reduced to this label of hey you're a practitioner and the things that practitioners do is bind others and so that's that's that and and maybe that's unfair for for the others to put on them but also in fairness like if we bring up the concept of privilege here as humans they are privileged that they can't be basically enslaved and i love that 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 lucy is a lens and and lucy's the prejudice that lucy has experienced is a lens that we're using to kind of draw the parallel to um uh to 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 the the inherent kind of power dynamics of practitioner and other yeah i also love how it ties into the self-fulfillment of a lot of this prejudice because these fuckers turned them into practitioners like (laughs) yes i know oh my god i just had that thought as well of like they're being judged as practitioners oh you 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 practitioners we can't trust you even though we're the ones who literally got you to be this thing yeah like like it's it's ridiculous and that's that's generally what most prejudice comes back to so um i I really like it as an example of that but um to to go into what you said like yeah it's this interesting thing because you can see from the other's perspective 
Um, particularly what we learned about like from Edith and Matthew, where like how they're limited and how they can rise through the ranks and, mm. and the way practitioners bind them. It, it's easy to see from the other's perspective why they would view the practitioners as like the, the privileged ones. But that's obviously not how like Verona, Avery and Lucy see themselves um, in this axis or on many others. And like, I think that's like the really interesting thing you could sort of explore here. Like I think privilege is something that comes in many dimensions. It's not like this binary you have the privilege and this person doesn't like there's, there's all mm-hmm. these sorts of a- angles to it. And it's like, you know, f- from this lens, uh, they're privileged and, and like, you know, obviously through not like Lu- Lucy's an obvious example as a practitioner compared to others, you can see that as a sort of privilege she has, but then obviously like she suffers like racism in the town. So she, you know, she, there's like another angle where you can view, she doesn't have privilege. And like, yes. it's, it's just such a mess, and I think that that's something we can start to get into here. Yeah, I I really love the idea of these of these interesting power dynamics around Kenneth. Like we touched on this with Nicole and the fact that the 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 you know the the Kenneteers here are like they've been handed immense power on a silver spoon mm. on a platter, right? Like I don't know. I think there's a lot of really interesting power dynamics in the story that we're getting to explore yeah yeah exactly like the yeah like nicolette was another one like they seemed pretty privileged from her point of view but that's not how they see it um there's also like to 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 sort of just move on to the the kenneth others not being uh low on the rung here because there's definitely this sort of sense of them being one of those immovable powers that be with this voting stuff. Like, so they to, to jump ahead to the results a bit, they require a unanimous vote to basically do anything. Yes. And there's really this, there's this moment where Lucy's like, so let me get this straight. The majority of you agree that what the hungry choir is doing is bad, but because it wasn't unanimous, you're all going to sit on your asses and not do anything. And I mean, obviously <sighs> that feels applicable to like a lot of the stuff that's going on right now in the world. Um, and sort of like, you know, again, of course, I had to be Lucy starts to call that out because it's just like, like, it's so frustrating when it's like, yes, most of us admit this is a problem, but not enough of us that we're going to do anything. Yeah, not, and it's, there is a majority. It's just not unanimous. Like, fine. yeah, exactly. And there's just like, oh, well, you know, it could cause more problems within our social circle uh, if we do try to address it. And it's like, well, yeah, people are dying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's going to cause problems in your social. It's maybe, make it awkward at the next maybe these at Matthew's house. Yeah, well, maybe these shitheads who don't think it's a problem need to be like, like if they're going to fight it and if it's going to upset them, like, fucking, then yeah, have that. Yeah, fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they're um, okay with all these people dying. Like, fuck them. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the votes, shall we? So, first of all, the votes uh, for teaching binding. It was only three yeses. Um, I think Charles is probably one of those, and I'm curious who you think the other ones are. Maybe Matthew, Alpi, or the Fae? Yeah, I I tried to think about this for a while. I think, like, Charles and Matthew are the two I'd be the most confident in, but, like, even then, you know, like, I don't know. I I think, weirdly, I'd actually put John as one of the S's. Yeah, interesting. Um, I think... Things seemed like they really weren't great between them, but just some other moments in this. I just, I really do think John actually trusts these three. Yeah, I hope that. I hope I'm right about that. But um, yeah, yeah John would be my like surprise. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. the Fae are interesting because, like, you're right. Like, I, I, I can't possibly try and get into the heads of the Fae and see where they're at. So they're, they're always, you know, they're always going to have odds of at least 10 to 1 for anything, yes or no, because yeah. you don't know what the fuck they're up to. 
They could literally do anything. It, yeah, it's exactly. It's just arbitrary from our perspective at this point. <laughs> I um, may as well flip a coin. Yeah. Uh, so there was also the vote about dealing with the choir, which the majority was in support of, but four people voted against. Um, who do you think that is? I mean, yeah. John, again, possibly here, given what comes out with the older thing. So it's interesting. I would classify John as someone who... It, it, so obviously we learned that he had started to figure out that it was Yolda. And yeah. I mean, we don't know enough about his exact relationship with her, but yeah, my instinct on him learning that the Hungry Choir is Yolda would for him to be like, this is a bastardization of like a girl that I loved. Like mm. I would almost think he'd be more on team. Like, fuck. Mm. You know, it's like, when you, it's like, would you shoot your friend if they got turned into a zombie? Mm. And it's sort of like, like, for me, it's like, well, that's not them. It's a, you know, it's a zombie. It's, yeah. a, it's a it's a it's a bastardization of them like you know i i would i would want to be killed if it was a zombie version of me because that's like worse than being dead yeah so i could see john yeah. actually being like very pro taking on the hungry choir so who do you think voted against it i mean i'm still suspicious that some people are actually involved <laughs> like i know they all say no right. here so we're meant to yeah. think they're not but i just can't believe that this happened accidentally <laughs> um yeah. and charles can lie so him saying no doesn't mean shit yeah uh, so I'd say, wait, Charles probably a no. Then whoever his co-conspirators are. But if Charles, if if Charles is behind it, I mean, it's the most obvious thing for him to vote no here, right? Like, what possible reason does he have for voting no? Assuming was it an anonymous vote? Can, I don't think it was anonymous. It wasn't because no, right. they say that they don't want to reveal who it was to the to the trio, but they I don't think they imply it was anonymous. Unless I'm yeah, it's a good point. It yeah, there's room for it to maybe have been ambiguous, but I feel like it was anonymous, but it would have come up. Um so you're probably right. I don't know. Like they wait honestly if Charles said no, like, would they even care? Um Yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right. I mean, yeah, like uh you've got to hear in the notes that you think the goblins and I think that, that makes sense just because they're chaotic little fuckheads like Yeah. I guess it's just being like more violence as well. There's a Reddit post as well that I liked where someone was like, uh, if the Hungry Choir is gone, the goblins are the next most, um, like, brutish uh, thing in sure. town. And so they probably see the Hungry Choir. They could potentially see the Hungry Choir as a bit of a buffer on that. Um, keeping keeping the Overton window shifted, as it were. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, the last vote is the group unanimously votes to continue trusting and teaching the group stuff. So, yay. Yeah, like, it's something. <laughs> it is. It is. They voted on it, so if they voted on it, it it was a potent potentially it could have been a no, but it wasn't. That's yeah, right. I and mean, the fact that it was seemingly unanimous is is a good sign. Like we sort of talked yeah. about how, and and Avery just brings it up here. She's kind of like, if you want us to like stay on your side and wait, like we all want to be allies here. You're the ones who are like pushing us away and kind of making this not the case. Um, and we talked a lot about that last week, so it was just kind of like good to see Avery just address it up front and and this is like the one sign that the situation between the kenneteers and the kennet others is salvageable the fact that all of them were like okay no we should keep like helping them to some degree yeah yeah um so obviously the group is not happy with these results and lucy speaks up and gives the kennet others a piece of her mind what yeah. a good speech this is she's really on the ball about all this stuff um and i love that she talks about some of the stuff way back from the start of this story with the awakening ritual. And she was like really on top of it. Like I'm glad <laughs> she's been on top of it from the get go because otherwise Avery and Verona would really be in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember when Verona was like kicking Lucy for adding in those conditions during the ritual. And now we're just saying, Oh my God. Um, 
yeah, you're right. And like again, like this had to be Lucy. This had to be in a Lucy chapter because, uh, like, what I love about this speech is this is basically Lucy's constant need to want people to like actually do things, and it's always it's yeah. always so good to see her just be like, "Can you fucking do it, please? Like, stop saying things and and be proactive and try to make yeah. the world a better place. Stop being like, oh yeah, it does suck." Yeah, I mean, she's basically just asking them to put their money where their mouth is, right? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I, I love that she points out, and the the basic gist that she points here is the Hungry Choir were there at the Awakening, but they haven't really participated, so she doesn't see them as, and she thinks she can rightfully go after them. She doesn't think they're protected by the deal to not go after any of the Kennet others, in air quotes, um, which, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, although... Interestingly, something Matthew brings up earlier on is that, like, so the Kennedys are getting, like, all these percentage points of powers from, like, every other in town. Yeah. And a big chunk of that is that they're also getting percentage of power from the Hungry Choir, who is, like, one of the most powerful things in, in town. So, yeah. like, by taking it out, they stand to significantly depower themselves. And I really, really liked that this was brought up and, and confirmed that it's happening because... This makes it so much more important that the Kennedys are still like, no, we got to take it out. Because I feel like, like what we see here, is, and the criticism like we all sort of have of the Kennedy others here is, uh they don't want to like rock the boat. Um, yeah. When it comes to the hungry choir, and it's like that's why they need the unanimous vote. Um, because they, yeah. you know, oh, oh we don't, we don't want to upset things for the worse. Um, and, and it's that sort of like in the real world, the the, the reason you see people doing that sort of thing is because you know they don't want to lose where they are on the ladder like if you're not on the bottom of the ladder you sort of have something to lose and it causes you to be less likely to put yourself out there and and the kennedy is not like that like they've they've they stand to lose a lot of their power base by going after the hungry choir but they know it's the right thing to do and they're still doing it and like that's really important and really powerful to me Mm, mm, interesting yeah i like that um i'm yeah i'm interested because you know the reason that they give for why they're not willing to why they're not willing to go more aggressively after the hungry choir is this like they're a part of kennett and whether we like it or not they are contributing power and all this stuff right um i i don't know thinking about that and thinking about the fact that that you know edith in the very next little part says um if you go after the hungry choir some of the others of kennett might interfere and i'm 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 just kind of sitting with that and trying to think who is it that is against this? Like, who is it that is so keen to maintain the status quo that they're going to, I don't know. Who do you think? I mean, cause John is one that potentially jumps to mind because obviously he has a relationship with the order, but as you've mentioned, that's maybe the opposite of what that implies. Because it's going to be one he, or the other, depending on yeah. his exact relationship with her and, and the hungry choir. Yeah. Um, but who else would be, who like, it comes, brings me back to who are the four no's. Right? Yeah, basically. I, just, I don't know. Like if if somebody did do this on purpose, like with or without Charles's help, um, presumably it would be those people. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So yeah, Yelda is confirmed. Hungry choir. Uh, anything to say on that, Elliot? Um. No. I mean, we get more details, and I think it's interesting because it it muddies the waters a lot. Like, uh, you know, it she was put into a doll and buried, and and yeah. that's just interesting. I mean, there's a sense like. Something that you see a lot in in sci-fi and fantasy is this, like, you know, like, oftentimes the bad guys will be, like, an insectoid race because insectoids have a queen and then you've got, like, a single target. Like, 
you know what I mean? Like, so if you defeat right, the queen, like a then weak, the whole army some wins. weak point in this yeah. creature. You know, or yeah, there's always like you know, cut the head off the snake and and the, yeah, and the body dies. Yeah. And it's because like otherwise you can't defeat this this entire insectoid race um, if they're all independent, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and that's sort of like that's sort of what we start to get here is it's like okay, there's some sort of core where like whatever form the older core takes, but there there is something yeah. we can now target. Um, yeah. And and so like that's that's going to be the really interesting thing is seeing exactly what form that takes and how what they can do about it. Yep, a creepy ghost doll. I'm sure that'll be fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So okay. So um, the trio then reunite with Snowdrop, who tells them Bree has returned and has been uh, forcibly apprehended. Let's say by the goblin. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think they talk about this at the end of three point six. It's like if we find her again, we will take her prisoner and keep her there until like we can know what to do with her yeah and there's i, I think it's avery who's like that doesn't feel like a good guy move and and Verona's just like yeah but our other options it's are a straight up bad guy moves her, yeah. <laughs> um yeah so she's been uh kidnapped uh taken whatever um and we get this beat at the end where lucy thinks uh well exp- this specific wording is she thinks We'll try it their way. A partial binding is better than nothing at all. Which I just is vague enough that I wasn't fully sure what it means. But presumably they're talking about binding the hungry choir, right? Yeah, because like the negotiations I had in three point six with Zed and Bree were, yeah. um, like Zed and Bree wanted to not quite disable it because they wanted Bree yeah. to keep the benefits. Yeah. Um. So my interpretation of this is they're actually going to release Bree and team up with her and Zed to to do it because the kind of others won't help them I, I, like, I think that's that's the interesting new dynamic like i talked at the start of this episode like i felt like we were setting up the dynamic and we want to shift it and here it is now like i don't think the Canada others are going to be impressed that they're going to work with zed and brie to to do something in town well we had the the battle at, in 3.6 of zed and brie versus John and the Goblins with Verona and Avery on the John and the Goblin side and we might get a reversal of that where it's Zed and Bree right. versus John and the Goblins, but now Verona and Avery have switched sides. Yeah, yeah. So it, like, this is going to be really interesting. It seems like they're going to team up with them, and to what extent and exactly what that means is going to be fascinating to see. Yeah, um, but that's the end of 3.7. Uh, and we, then we get the extra material uh, for this week, which is Confiscated Items, which is a tour through Zed's, uh, through Zed's trash, all the items that he gave to Bree and the notes that he left for her about what they all do. And yeah, man, this is so full of juice. <laughs> yeah, it's this kind of little glimpse into the future. Like presumably part of three point eight will cover um the Kennedy is getting their hands on this stuff. Yes. Um that has been taken from Bree. Uh I mean the the style, like this bonus bit just visually is oozing with this great like eighties yes, and neon God. vibe. Um yeah. it's it's amazing. I love the eighties technomancer vibe to Zed. It's just so much fun. Um yeah, like I just technomancy as a concept is something I'm really excited to get into here because like the magic of this world has been established as something that's built on like patterns and, and meaning. And, and, yeah. and we, we touched on, I think it was Avery at one point was like, Oh, I want a smartphone as my implement. And miss was like, <laughs> Oh, like I wouldn't do that. They're pretty, they're new. So there's not as much meaning associated with them. And obviously you discard them. So they're kind yeah. of weak. And yeah, Right, that leads to this also thing. Like the the problem with technology in this world is it hasn't been around to stew in meaning as long as as everything else. Um, yeah. So and like like that, I think that's why there's the '80s vibe 
to this, this stuff because like you know it, a keyboard needs to have been around from the 80s to amass enough spiritual like stuff spirits, to be worth yeah. anything yeah i find that very interesting the fact that he has to use old technology because like the older the technology is the better chances are that it has you know a, a spiritual juice to it um yeah and, well, great. and like uh, there was a bit when we went to the spirit world in arc 2 where Alpi sort of mentioned how the spirit world was sort of fundamentally changing. And I wonder if this stuff will sort of all tie together. Like we'll start mm. to learn, uh, like technology is changing the shape of the world and presumably the shape of the spirit world. And, and like technomancy is definitely an angle to explore that through because, I mean, you know, techno- if technology is what's changing the world and, and changing the spirit world, then the interaction of those two things is obviously important. Mm. Um and, and and like as well, just it's like the other things like so something like a computer bug. So one of these things here is a little computer bug that's actually like a card and a bug that you stick into a computer and it fucks it up. Yeah. And what I love about this is um, aside from like the original instance of a computer bug, like the term does not usually have anything to do with bugs. With insects, yeah. Um, but this card has a picture of an insect on it. And so like the so many things in technology use real world metaphors to name them. Mm. um and like I, i'd be so interested to just explore the relationship between the real world thing and the metaphor that we use to name it in tech so something like a computer bug like how does drawing on insect imagery affect something that is meant to cause bugs in computers you know that's such a fascinating yeah. angle yeah definitely um i feel like there is a kind of thematic through line there right because we also have the enter key which is a key but he calls it an enter key which is <laughs> great um but it's like adding power to these objects by giving them the I don't know the 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 nomenclature of these computer terms or something I don't know. Yeah, it, it's it's like you're almost trying to draw on uh, adjacent meanings to empower yes. stuff that may not be as rooted in the world. Yeah, I guess I guess uh, synonyms and homonyms seem to be a big part of um, of this world just in general. So I guess that this is just an extension of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so cool, um, so cool. Like, I can't, I can't wait to to get into more of this stuff. Yeah, like that's right the now. end of uh, that's the end of our chapters. Yeah. So, uh, do you want to take us away with you? You wanted to dive into technomancy a bit more, right? Yeah, this is going to be a pretty short bonus bit. I'm not going to lie because, um, I mean, unsurprisingly, technomancy just as any sort of concept is pretty new, like technology. Like, because if you think about it, real digital technology, like hasn't been big for long enough to to really have been much of a thing um so it, it, like, even the term technomancy only first popped up in the 1990s um and it only applies to a subset of fantasy and sci-fi um so it's not super common um so this will be a pretty short one yeah cool well take it away <laughs> um so i think the main thing i wanted to sort of talk about here is um there there is like a, a thing in the real world um that's that's actually sort of called techno paganism so technomancy is what you call it in like D and <laughs> rpgs like all these sorts of things yeah. right um techno paganism is sort of a real world thing that sort of touches on this um so it, it's like a branch of like modern paganism um and obviously like you know the modern term for paganism is sort of like this wide umbrella term that really covers anything that's not a, a major world religion like anything that taps into more um old school belief systems so whether it's multiple gods or um I, like i think we talked about i don't know if we've talked about impale we definitely talked about it in deep impact but um animism 
Mm. which is like the set of so animism is basically a set of ancient beliefs and it was found pretty much around the world and it was the idea that everything has spirits associated with it so it's basically what we see in in this universe here like um animists would have believed that a rock has a spirit and and you know trees have spirits and and you know what it's what you see in pact and animism is real in pact basically and pale um so techno paganism is sort of a very animist view of technology and and like these these people sort of frame their understanding of technology through like what sort of spirits and stuff are associated with it it's like mm. at its simplest some people call like techno paganism oh there's a pagan ritual that requires using a fireplace but you use an oven that's technology mm. so that's techno paganism mm. um but swapping it out yeah yeah but uh like like i i found some interviews and these were fascinating to read with like like proper techno paganists and of course they all worked in the bay area um surprising mm, no one um they so yeah they, they had this view of of focusing on how all aspects of modern modern living whether it's smartphones or cars or roads like ha- have their own spirits and and trying to draw on that um so well, there was this one interview with a guy who was like really big. He was like helping design core parts of the internet and stuff in the early nineties. And he was talking about how the, the spirit world in, in his sort of branch of animism is, you know, just a projection of human thought and imagination. Um, and really that's all the digital world is like, so studying uh, the spirit world was helping him to study what the internet could be um, by sort of studying what human imagination leads to. Um mm. It was just fascinating to sort of see this, this lens of how people like using animism to uh, applying ancient animism beliefs to technology and then applying that to how they were building the early internet. And I don't really think anything he said turned out to be super relevant um, mm. based on my quick skim of the interview, but it was just fascinating to learn this stuff's out there. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's it's just the next evolution of of the kind of human belief in things that led to the rise of religion and stuff, right? Is humans have this desperate need to believe in things and, and we believe in the things based on what we see around us. So um, why not start to have that be influenced by technology, right? Yeah. It, it's interesting. Like reading these interviews, I, I'm unsure how many like techno paganists actually believe spirits would be like mm. real like they are in pale you know it was like real physical things you can manipulate or, or whether it's just like a framework for how you view things like viewing everything i think as that's having... the first step right yeah like, yeah in the emergence of a belief the first step is hey what about this kind of way of seeing the world and you kind of you use it as a lens but you don't actually believe it to start with and then you know it kind of sinks in and starts becoming this thing <laughs> that you give power to through your reinforcement of it you know yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's an ironically it powers itself. Um, yeah, much exactly. Like the stuff in animism that you're framing. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Um, yeah, so it was just interesting, like reading these perspectives. And even though I don't think a lot of these people genuinely believed in spirits, it was interesting seeing how they use it to frame like working on the technology that's ended up like reshaping uh, like the planet. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Also, there's a techno pagan in in Buffy. That was that cool. was a fun fact uh, that I came across. So, Very fun, Matt. If you're listening, watch Buffy. <laughs> um, cool, good stuff. Um, yeah, uh, should, we, should we jump straight into our discussion question? Actually, now that we've been talking about techno technomancy for a couple of minutes. Sure. Yeah, we wanted to do a discussion question. I just like this bonus material with Zed's confiscated items was my favorite that we've had so far. 
So I want to give people the opportunity to dive more into that. Um, or at least that's what I hope to get out of this discussion question. Yeah. Uh, so, so our discussion question is, what piece of outmoded tech would you use as a technomancer tool and what would it do? So it's basically a design your own uh, confiscated item discussion question. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just want I just want more people to come up with very cool, um, you know, very cool techno <laughs> shit. You know. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I'm trying to think of any other big tech things because my first thought when you wrote this this question down was like thinking about like an Atari or something. Um, like a game console back then, and then I was like, oh, you could mm. have different ghosts in each cartridge. And then I realized that's probably just a shittier version of the cassettes. Because yeah, like true. cassettes are a more popular like medium. So they're, they're, that's probably yeah. why they host the ghosts better. Yeah. So I have to think of something outside of gaming, which would be tough, but I can do it. <laughs> I believe in you, Elliot. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, should we jump back to our pale predictors? Yes. Uh, so what have you brought? Um, so these are our prediction or p- predictions from the community, obviously, that were left in the Power Prediction spreadsheet, which you can find in the link down below. I brought a prediction from a user called Dancing Anatolia, uh, who talks about, well, I'll read out their prediction. They say Zed is one of or the sole contributor to the Hungry Choir Preparation website. We know he's been researching ways to make the choir weaker, and he believes in, in air quotes, free information, so he shared his gathered info online. Uh, I don't think he's the only sole contributor, but I do think this is a really interesting link to pull out like mm. zed believes in freedom of information and is intently researching the hungry choir that's too much of a coincidence for him not to have at least found the the hungry choir game facts page and or, contributed to it yes. like after finding it yeah exactly so i think there's i think the fact that this has been introduced means we're probably going to see something have happened there whether it's just a confirmation of like and this is how he met brie or whatever i think that yeah. there might be a little bit more to it but we'll, we'll see I just think that's a really cool link to have to have found. I I think the idea that it's how he found Bree is spot on. Like I yeah, yeah I've sort of headcanoned that already after seeing this prediction. Yeah. Um, until proven otherwise. Yeah. Um I, I pulled out a prediction from Uncle Thermos Scales or Uncle Thermoscales. Okay. Um who so basically uh what Uncle Thermoscales noticed is that uh the banners so well, you know how each each candidate's perspective has a banner at the top um what they notice is that avery's is her walking the forest ribbon trail there's even the mm. wolf there which yes. this is this is why this is the moment that i decided to bring this because i went and looked and the wolf is fucking there and i was you like how did i notice that yeah i i noticed it i think early in the story and then sort of forgot yeah um anyway yeah so basically um uncle thermoscales has built this theory that the banner kind of gives us hints as to the the way each kenneteer will sort of be defined as a practitioner um so like basically uncle thermoscales touches on uh like verona's is focused on her computer in her room so um maybe she's going to be drawn to the sort of zed type technomancy stuff um and then lucy's is you know all these swords stabbed into the ground and lots of like blood red stains so maybe something to do with blood magic um yeah but i mostly just brought this because i hadn't noticed that avery's was the forest ribbon trail and uh, like in case there's any other idiots like me out there who hadn't noticed that like this needs to be shared Mm, yeah um yeah i think lucy's is the one that we don't really have enough connection with right um yeah i like the blood connection because she she has been affiliated with with violence uh, like you know she had the knife as her thing and 
Uh, so she has done some blood magic uh, accidentally on Paul that one time. Yeah, true. Or accidentally true. might be a strong word for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, I, I don't grasp it. Whereas, like, yeah, Verona's definitely. I don't feel like it clinches it. Like Avery's was just immediately like, oh yes, this is her being a finder. Whereas Verona's, it's like, it more just summarizes her as a person so far. Uh, to my understanding, like it's a very dark image because, you know, she likes her dark. There were a bunch of runes everywhere. Like there is the computer there. So I definitely agree with yeah. Uncle Thermoscales on that, that being like important to the, the picture. But it almost just yes. feels like a, a wider summary of who she is as a yeah. person slash practitioner. Yeah, I wonder whether we're going to, get the beats where you know in three chapters time it's like oh and this is what verona's is oh and that's what lucy's is you know it's this specific moment of the story that we just haven't got to yet yeah yeah i mean we'll see like um maybe they're distinct moments maybe they're they're more like wider summaries of the of the people uh, the person themselves because there's like i mean even their uh postures comes into it like lucy yeah. has this real intense focus look um avery's kind of like skipping um yeah and then like verona just looks upset um mm. which you know i mean her mural is set in her house so fair mm. Mm. <sighs> yeah we'll see we'll see i guess whether it's specific things or just kind of vibe <laughs> yeah um cool i mean i guess that's our show folks yeah um, so leave your answers for- to the discussion question in the discussion thread which will be linked yes. down below yeah, or just thoughts on these chapters or on the, sh- the episode in general. Um, if you want to support the show, why not leave us a review on your podcatcher of choice, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever else you use. Yeah, those ads help us uh, get points in the algorithm, and algorithm mm-hmm. points are, are very important for Yes, we can redeem the them hungry for fire. buttons, magnets, things like that. Yeah. Uh, we also have a, a have a Twitter, which we may or may not be Ooh. renaming soon. But for right now, it's still at Media the Podcast. <laughs> we haven't really decided. We'll probably rename it. Yeah, we're f- we're it figuring out. that out in our own time. Yeah. We're very much like the Canada others with this. We're, we're, yeah. we're just playing it by ear. It will take five to six weeks before we decide <laughs> to do anything. Um, so if you want to check out the other great content on the Doof Media Network, you can go to doofmedia.com. See all the shows there. Um, there's all kinds of great shows on there. You can check the calendar page for the specific release dates of them. Yeah. So like about when this episode comes out about 12 hours ago, uh, there was the Doof book club, uh, yes. on the first 15 lives of Harry August, uh, which is, um, I mean, something I'm, I'm very excited to go and check out. Um, it's a, it's mm. like a groundhog day esque type story, which, uh, yeah. is my favorite type of genre. Yes, Sub-genre? I it's... can't remember the author's name, but they've won. Uh, she's won a few interesting prizes for science fiction, so I'm I, sure it's a great book. I just um, realized I should have done Groundhog Day stories for my path because that's like a weird little subgenre oh yeah, story. Yeah, I like that. I like that indeed. Um, uh, anyway. If you want to support the the Doof Media Network, you can also become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Doof Media and leaving us some dollars. Yes, uh, it really helps we support are... the network. At time of recording, like ten-ish patrons away from mm. uh, getting access to Matt's uh, uh, original story that that he's been working on. Um, so basically, he's written some scripts and stuff, and and they look really cool. Uh, and when we hit that goal, that's when uh, production will actually sort of kick off. Mm. Um, 
and and it'll start to happen so if you want to hear like matt is actually a very very good writer any of you who have done the right thing alongside him will uh have seen and i'm really excited mm. for this so if if that interests you and you're not yet a patron head on over to patreon.com forward slash doof media and help us uh, get that original matt content yeah definitely um yeah cool uh while you're on patreon.com why not head over to patreon.com forward slash wabo that's uh wabo's patreon and you can give him some money and that would be good and i'm trying to desperately think of a thing to from this episode to tie it to but i can't think of one um so just give him some money it doesn't always have to be a joke just do it <laughs> just support him jeez yeah i mean you like you've just listened to like an hour and a half of this podcast More, two hours on the story wabo wrote um, you know, if you're enjoying it that much and you, you're in the position to do so, consider giving him some money. Mm. Yep. Um, do it. All right. And that's Cut. the end of our show. Yeah.